Welcome to Radio Kemp. You are listening today to our Call to Action podcast series, where transformative ideas from our annual Call to Action conference come to life. Join us on our journey to change child welfare to a child and family well-being system rooted in community, economic, and social justice. Welcome, and welcome back. This is the Call to Action podcast series on Radio Kemp. I'm Kendall Marlowe with the Kemp Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Child Abuse and Neglect. Thank you for joining us, for taking the time to come together like this. Allie Caliendo is with us today. Hello, Allie. Hi, thanks for having me. Allie, Allie, uh, you were part of a way cool session this past fall at the Kemp Center's Call to Action Conference. You were part of an international exchange on kinship and kinship care with a very cool group of advocates and experts from all over the world. This territory, though, is not new to you. Allie, can you take us on a journey? How did, when did this all start for you? So the the concept of the importance of family and being connected to your family actually started very young for me because one of my earliest memories of my mother was when I must have been around three and she looked me in the face and said to me, you know, on my level, you're the only person on this earth that I know I'm related to. And what she was referring to is the fact that she was adopted out of the, you know, foster care system in the fifties and had no idea who her biological family was. She was also adopted into a home that didn't really talk about adoption. It was where you're here, you're my child, and we don't talk about the trauma of that. And so when she became a parent and had that feeling of now I know I'm connected to someone, I spent my childhood watching her struggle to to identify with who she was and where she came from. When I was in my teenage years, she finally did connect with some of her biological family. And I saw a a depression lift from her and sort of a confusion and a darkness lift from her as she knew where she came from. And I'm not saying that the family tree that we come from is all great because it's not. There are serious issues, but it was so important for her to know where she came from. So when I entered into this work as a professional, my goal is always for children to know where they come from, have that connection. And so for me, kinship care and advocating for relatives who are filling that space and keeping children connected to their family is a logical place to advocate for children when they are not able to live with their parents. So how did that happen for you? How did you get into this on a professional level then? I think of myself as an accidental witness. So my starting point was working directly with children who are in the foster care system. And I just happened to be working with children who were in kinship homes. And there was just a lot of confusion on the part of the caregiver. They had questions about what does it mean if I adopt this child? When can they go back home to my son or daughter? What financial support can I get? I don't understand this trauma. I don't know how to parent a child who's experienced this type of um, abuse. I have shame about this is my family and I'm in embarrassed to ask for help. So while I was there working with children, I ended up realizing that the intervention for children should be with where they're living and their caregivers. And so I I shifted my work into supporting the kinship home. 
And it all really snapped into place. And I started this nonprofit about 10 years ago now when I was working with a family who, it was a great aunt who had stepped up for four children who had seen just horrific trauma. Their mother was murdered in front of them. Um, and they were kept together by this great aunt and they were placed in foster care, living with a great aunt. And for six months, this great aunt had struggled to, to support them. And as, as anyone would with four new children in the home and six months into it, she asked her caseworker with the child welfare system for some help. Like, what can I do? I've lost my job because I have to take them to their medical appointments. I need support. And it was at that point, six months into this, that the child welfare system, it told her about the option to become a licensed caregiver so she could get reimbursed. And for me, this was where I say I'm an accidental witness, because if I had known that that was an option six months before, of course, we would have talked about it immediately. So it was sort of horrifying to see how they let this caregiver just operate without any support that was actually available. Um, And this woman was incredible. She went through the whole licensing process, which is quite intense. And they came out to do her home study and they took their measuring tape out and they're measuring her bedrooms where these four kids are living. And they said to her, you know what? I'm sorry, you don't have enough square footage. So you don't meet the requirements for licensing. So we're not going to license you. And that was that was it. End of story. They walked out of their home. And um, this great aunt, again, like I said, she's amazing. So she didn't give up. She found a home that was large enough to be licensed. And she, at this point, really needed financial help. And she didn't have $800 that was needed for a down payment to move so that she could be in a larger home, so that she could get licensed, so that she could keep these kids all together and safe with family. And when she asked her worker again for the $800 for the down payment with this plan in mind for stability, the worker said, sounds like you don't have the money to take care of these children. So I'm going to remove them from your home and place them in separate foster homes. And so that was the moment that my life completely changed. And I said, that's it. Um, this can't possibly be in the best interest of these children to be separated from each other and from their family over $800. So we're going to go ahead and figure out how to get her moved. And then I um, started researching how frequently was this happening where we're talking about kinship care as a great solution for children in foster care and then literally making it almost impossible for them to do it well. <laughs> Which was so, which is a lot of families. <laughs> kinship care. We're tossing around a term that I suspect is a bit of an industry term, but we use it so much, we don't even think of it that way. So, what is kinship care? And then, when you went out to find out, is this happening to other folks? What did you find? So, kinship care is when a child is not living with either of their parents, but is living with a family member or a family friend, someone they know, and. And I contrast it with traditional foster care, where a child is living in a home with people who they had no pre-existing relationship to. Kinship care is the child staying with their family. So Um, what did you find then? You said you headed out there to look into this. What did you find? So what I found was what I thought was going to be sort of a small issue because we have, in in our state, we have about 30 to 40% of children in foster care are in the kinship homes, like I just described. But what I found when I did research was that for every one child who is in that foster care system with kin, there are 11 children living with kin outside of the foster care system. Say say that again. That's a staggering. Say that again. Yes. So for every one child who is with kin in foster care, there are 11 living with in kinship care outside of the foster care system. 
So huge, is this yeah, huge just, population? Is, is this just a, this, a you're you're saying this is not just a foster care system situation then? Not at all. Not at all. It's it's a a family solution for when kids can't live with their parents, and most oftentimes the family steps up and it's it keeps kids away from the traditional foster care system with living with traditional foster. In the in that conference session, I heard Kathy Ashley say, "Kinship care is a natural thing; it just happens." Is yes, is it, it that does. simple? It is that simple. I think if you look back, if I talk to anyone, you look back in your own family tree, you're going to find kinship care there somewhere. It's very rare that this hasn't kept someone's family together over generations. So move us forward then. You saw this was a, a, a larger problem. These were not outlier cases. What did you decide to do about it then? So the first thing I did was I raised $800 and had that family move. So she got licensed and could adopt those children and keep those kids with family. And as I did that, that's where I had the, maybe I should start a nonprofit to make sure that there is the support to fill in the gaps for kinship families. So I started an organization called Foster Kinship about 10 years ago and just only wanting to be a witness to what families were experiencing. I listened to what the grandmas and the aunts and the family friends need and foster kinship works really hard to fill that gap. Uh, and it's a huge, it's a huge gap. And the more I learned, the more I was shocked and appalled by the way we treat kinship families in this country and really in across the across the world. <laughs> so in practical terms, um, your your program is encountering a family. What do you do for folks? The first thing we do is we try to get that kinship family stabilized. So you need diapers, you need a crib, you need a car seat, you need your car seat installed. We're going to do those basic things to keep kids safe and fed and clothed. And then we work really closely with the caregiver to stabilize legally if they need legal capacity and to stabilize financially because it costs money to raise children. And oftentimes they're just doing it on a fixed income and have no access to additional support. So we, we fight really hard to get them some more support in the home. And then our final layer is making sure that caregivers understand that children who've experienced trauma need to be parented differently than you might parent a child who hasn't experienced trauma. So we work a lot on caregiver support, helping them understand children's behaviors. Um, we provide respite care, family events, support groups, anything we need to do to help that caregiver be the best parent for a child who's experienced trauma and hopefully help them, that child thrive as much as possible. So it isn't just material supports. It isn't just the $800, although in that particular case, it seems like $800 was exactly what was needed. How do you do that support to what it's like to care for a traumatized kid? And I want to introduce an issue into this conversation, Allie, which is that when we try to help, uh, we as the child and family services systems, what we do doesn't always feel like help to the people we're helping. How do you deliver help that's the help that they need that's actually effective, that actually helps them care for this kid? That It's easy to say. It strikes me that might not, that not, might, might not but always be easy to do. The number one thing that we've learned is that you have empathy and hospitality for families and you meet them where they are. 
So we go in, we are a, a nonprofit. We're not the government. I don't have a badge. I have experience as a caregiver myself. My staff have experience as kinship caregivers. So we're going in with, I've been where you've been. I understand what you're dealing with. Um, let's make a cup of tea and sit down and just tell me your story. And through that process of getting to know and building trust with the family, you will hear sort of the themes and the things that they need on their terms. And what we like to do is we believe that the family needs to make the best decision for their family. What we do is provide accurate information. So if you need this, here's how to get it. You know, this is an option if you go this direction. Kinship families don't always have the whole story and they're often making decisions in crisis. And then they realize they need more support after decisions have been made. So our goal is to give families accurate information as soon as possible at the right time. And then we trust that the family can make the best decision for themselves. You just uh, mentioned the word trust. Can we trust families? We have a child welfare system in this country that some people describe as a family surveillance system or a family policing system. And there's at least an idea behind that, that I think the old quote was trust, but verify that we needed to monitor. We needed to get reports. We needed to evaluate and assess whether this was a safe place, a good place for a kid to be. And only when that is absolutely assured and, and a judge agrees with it, um, I'm generalizing here, obviously, but only then would we say we're going to trust this kid with these folks um, that call themselves kin. In the United States of America, are we willing to trust families like that? I think the question is, who is we? Because if it's the child welfare system, there's work to be done on trusting. But I always use the example. We see it all the time. You're making the decision to put these four kids with this great aunt. You are already trusting that that is a safe place. And then there is no ability um, for that aunt to be supported because she doesn't the, the law for fostering. It's nonsense. And so we have to radically rethink what it means to give families the agency to make the best decisions for themselves. And that means we give them accurate information, that we're honest, um, and that we do trust what the, the strength that the family can bring. Because going back to my own family tree, th there are people that will step up and do the best they can for children in their family. Those are the people that we need to trust that they're doing the right thing and give the, the parents that are struggling in that moment the chance to, to do what they need to do, but taking children away from their family and not trusting that family or half trusting them, it's only damaging for the most part children and their outcomes. And I think we need to rethink it. I'm reminded of something I learned in school once, Allie, which was something that happened in Sweden in the 1990s. And it's called in the textbooks, the grandma revolt. And I love referencing that just because I love, I just love saying the grandma revolt. It seems to me that if you ever, you know, you're trying to get something done in public policy, what you would not want is an organized and ticked off group of grandmothers um, heading towards you. They know how to make things happen. So as the story goes, kinship placement had been traditionally disfavored in Sweden. 
in that era because the wording was because of intergenerational transmission of psychosocial problems. And so grandmas weren't getting their kids. The grandmas revolted. And in Sweden, they changed the law in 1997 so that they could and would uh, care for their or very own grandchildren. Uh, I cannot imagine personally, I would not be willing to walk up to any grandmother and say you could not care for your very own grandchild. Do we need a grandma revolt or an uncle and auntie revolt or a cousin revolt in this country? Do we need that? Absolutely. And we need to all think if you're in a role in a child welfare system, sometimes I'm, I'm just flabbergasted as if you don't have experience in a family yourself, families, you know, for all their flaws <laughs> and their strengths, we're not, we're ignoring that as child welfare professionals, oftentimes. And, you know, in my own family, you know, my parents raised us the best they could. One of us did okay. One of us didn't. It really has nothing to do with my mom. If my kids need to come in and I'm not able to care for them and someone's telling my mom she can't raise my children because of square footage or whatever. I mean, it's, it's absolute nonsense. It's disconnected from what we know about families and family systems. And I think that whole is, is generational transmission of trauma real? Absolutely. But that's where there's ways to strengthen families and give them the tools that they need to do the best job comes into play. We're not trying to look the other way and not support families. These families need assistance. They need help. These kids deserve support, but it doesn't mean we have to do it in the, in the old way, which I think we're moving away from as a system. I do see there's movement in the right direction to trusting families. So talk about that movement. So what are we doing? What, what should we do um, to provide the kind of support that you're talking about? Big picture. So big picture, I think we need to recognize that kinship care is both a solution. It's also an intervention for children who can't be with their parents. And as an intervention, we need to support it. So number one, kinship families keep kids with their family. Good thing and they keep them out of traditional foster care, that's a good thing. Um, but then we have to address the, why did a child come into kinship care in the first place? And oftentimes we overlook it. And that's where we need to go is putting resources into homes where children can't live with their parents, especially when you think that the majority of these children are already outside oversight of any formal system. How are these kids getting back home? How are they getting what they need? As a community, we need to start putting energy into supporting families to make the best decision, including in improving outcomes for reunification for those, those kids outside the foster care system and giving families the tools they need to heal. And families do heal when they have the tools that they need. So if you've got 10 or 11 of these situations for every one of these situations that happens in child welfare, can we do what you think we need to do just by reforming the child welfare system is it broader? Do we need more universal supports for this, for kin and for families generally? Yes, the answer is absolutely. There's short-term solutions that need to happen in the child welfare system. But the bigger picture is kids in non-parental care. So all 12 of those children that I discussed, and actually mm -hmm. there's, you know, there, you know, one 5% of kids actually are in um, non-parental care. Those kids deserve and need support and their families, whatever their family structure looks like needs that. So we need to de-link resources that are tied to stranger care and start looking at supporting families from preventing removal. And then if they must live with kin, supporting the kin in the short term and making sure that there's 
family has options to heal and kids can go home or if they can't go home, there's support for that child. We need to think about that group of kids, not just the group of children in foster care and trying to reduce foster care numbers. If we don't reduce the number of children in non-parental care, we haven't done anything. How, how do we how do we do that? How do we do that in in this? I'm going to focus on the United States for a second. We have a you know kind of nuclear family uh, focused concept of child rearing, whether that's actually the way it happens or not. Uh, to your point, um, we tend to think of it that way. I was struck in your session in the conference when Reese Fox mentioned that in the language of the indigenous peoples of New Zealand, there is no distinction between the word mom and the word aunt. There is no distinction between the word dad and the word uncle. It seems though, as though some parts of the world, some communities, some cultures have already bought in to a more kind of cooperative communal idea of raising kids can I'm putting all the world, all the way to the world on you, Ellie. Can can you get the United States there? Are, are we willing to expand our notion of how kids grow up to include that full family? So I I will be as optimistic as as I want to be right now because I do believe that if we give communities and families and the larger extended families the tools to create their own containers for healing and supporting their own family and their own community, we will see transformational change for families. It is about rethinking how we support each other. One of the things that foster kinship has done is we create these groups of caregivers and we're just here to sort of hold our arms around them loosely. They support each other. They're helping raise each other's grandchildren. They're watching out for each other. They provide, I have extra food this month. I can watch your kid this month. When you create that container where community is safe and there's trust amongst the participants, that's when transformation happens. So I think the best thing we can do if we're thinking about ourselves as change makers is give communities the tools to do that for themselves. And we're going to start to see bigger changes for children and families. What's that vision then? Let's imagine that I'm a part of a family and we've had to step up in the way that you've talked about. We're now, you know, my wife and I are now caring for uh, nephews and nieces or grandchildren or cousins or whatever it might be. We're out there in the world. We're not a part of the child welfare system. Imagine a family like that, that is stepping up and trying to do this. When you get us to the place where we need to get to, what is that experience like for me and my family? How does that happen for me? What is this new better world like for my family when I've decided to help out like this? I think the the first thing we have to do is approach families like that from a understanding, non-judgmental place. Because the shame that families carry with them prevents them from asking for the help that they would benefit from. So we have to have an approach that, hey, this is normal. This happens in families. This is okay. And there's actually resources for you. Our intervention at Foster Kinship is actually fairly short term. We spend about three months with a family like that, seeing if they need legal capacity, following it through until they receive that, getting them the financial support that is available 
available to them. And we're happy if they then don't need to come back over and over for services because they have the tools that they need to care for their family. I think taking this a step farther, when that family is trying to make decisions about when is it safe for children to return to their parents, one of the things we can do as a community is talk about uh, what does that look like? How do we help parents and co-parent in situations so that children are supported by all the adults that love them? Um, those are opportunities for all of us to continue to engage with families in this non-judgmental, compassionate way. You build that trust and then families' needs can be met. Right now, we don't have a, a trust-filled world at all. And that's where families uh, operate in isolation and it, it hurts everybody. And so if we can start coming at it from a compassionate and trust trusting point of view, you're going to see the strength of the family and support that family and supporting themselves and their community. Allie, I'd like to take you back to that moment with your mother when you were a child. And if you were speaking to her now, what would you say about what you're doing, what needs to happen, what you're doing to help people who experienced what she experienced? I hope, and what I would hope she sees is how much her experience mattered and how it has impacted the way I see the world and the need that children have to be connected to who they are and where they come from and to be validated for that experience. And that her experience has helped foster kinship, help, you know, thousands of children to not have to be separated from their family. And I do hope that means something to her now. And I think it does. Thank you, Ali Caliendo. And those cheers you hear in the distance come from the many uncles and grandmas and aunties and cousins around the world. Um, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing, Ali. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you for being with us. Come back soon. Come back soon. This has been the Call to Action podcast series on Radio Kemp. Thank you for listening to Radio Kemp and our Call to Action podcast series. We invite you to continue to be an active part of changing child welfare. For more information about how to stay connected with Kemp's efforts, you can learn more about our annual virtual call to action conference and this monthly series at www.kempconference.org. Again, that's www.kempeconference.org. Until next time.